0: learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead.
1: Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. Our discussions have generally been on science and COVID topics, but can really go wherever the conversations might lead. And if the listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. I'm very pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. Stephen Kritz. Dr. Kritz is a retired physician in the healthcare field for 50 years. He did 19 years of direct patient care in a rural setting as a board-certified internist, 17 years of clinical research in the areas of substance abuse, HIV and HCV, at a private not-for-profit health care agency. That led to some two dozen peer-reviewed published papers. He also has 35 years of involvement in public health as a medical director and chief of service or committee chair of virtually every department at a small rural hospital. And then he was health officer and medical examiner in the township and the county where he practiced, and many years of health systems, infrastructure, and administration activities, mainly in the areas of quality improvement and compliance as a primary developer, implementer, and director of these kinds of programs. Dr. Kritz retired five years ago and became a member of the Institutional Review Board, the IRB, at the agency where he had done clinical research and has been the IRB chair there for the past three years. And it's in his most recent IRB role that is what got my attention because of the utter abandonment of medical ethical principles that we've all experienced over the COVID pandemic. So Steve, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately?
2: Well, uh, I I think we we should go with um, what I uh, originally sent a query to the Brownstone Institute about, which was that as chair of uh, Institutional Review Board, I am aware that uh, our uh, activities are regulated by the Office for Human Research Protections of the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, the foundational documents uh, that generated uh, Office for Human Research Protections regulations are the Nuremberg Code uh, from 1948, which uh, came out of the uh, trials of the Nazi doctors and the experiments that they did on Jews. The other uh, document is the Belmont Report, which came out of Congress in the late 70s. And it was after their investigation of what went on in Tuskegee, where you had um, poor black men in the South who had uh, contracted syphilis and were just basically followed for 40 years and uh, nothing was done. Now, the mo- most important principle of the uh, Nuremberg Code regards informed consent, and it is very specific in terms of what needs to be done, that people need to know uh, if they're going to be a research subject, uh, what it is that's going to happen. And from the Belmont Report, there are three principles, but the one that's most important uh, for this discussion is has to do with bodily autonomy and that uh, you cannot give something to someone uh, unless uh, uh, they give uh, permission to do so. So um, very early on, Uh, during the uh, rollout of the vaccines for COVID, uh, I realized that uh, the whole idea of informed consent as codified in the Nuremberg Code and the uh, 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 principle of bodily autonomy had pretty much been ignored uh, with the mandates. And uh, I subsequently found out that the uh, Nuremberg code had actually been suspended as part of what was going on. But
1: uh suspended by
2: whom? Um
1: by OHRP. I, that may have been I don't
2: that may have been the Department of Defense or uh you know whoever was uh, running the show at the at the at the federal government. Um I just happened to see a blurb about that. Uh, okay. you know knew knew it had been ignored and then found out that it was uh uh, it was actually suspended
1: isn't there an international law that prohibits that was that isn't there a kind of international law or international convention that prohibits that and the common rule that was is C- 45 cfr 46 or something that also you know doesn't allow for for that to be suspended
2: um well there you know the uh with the international is the what the helsinki uh yes. humanization yeah. code and um and uh, all uh, in, in terms of whether it, it there there are very few there are a few exceptions to where you can uh, a- avoid those things. But that's like uh, you know if you're doing a a, a simple survey uh, uh, you know in a classroom or something like that uh, you know it's human subjects that are taking the survey but uh, uh you know if the risk is is minimal um then you know you can you can not uh, you don't need to necessarily use the consent but uh this was far from that this was this was essentially a phase 3 um pharmaceutical that was being uh, uh given to the public and uh so uh at a certain point, it dawned on me that, well, wait a minute. It's obvious that consent is is not being done properly, and that what bodily autonomy autonomy is not being observed in terms of the mandates. And I was thinking, well, gee, what did the Office of Human Research Protections have to say about it? And that was the basis of my query to to Brownstone. And, uh, clearly I hit a nerve because, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, have had communications with Jeffrey Tucker for over the last two plus years, about a dozen times. And he always gets back to me between, in between 12 and 24 hours, uh, with a response. Uh, but on this one, uh, you and Dr. Nass got back to me within 30 minutes. And so, uh, uh Clearly I had hit upon something. And uh and so you know that led to uh the uh email communications between you and me Dr. Nass. And uh and so uh and uh, actually Dr. Nass is the one who uh sort of gave the answer, which was that when emergency use authorization was put in place in 2005 and I believe she said that it actually that actually came about because she was part of the group that got the mandates for some kind of uh,
1: vaccine for soldiers or something. I think that was anthrax originally.
2: Yeah, she got it rescinded Uh, and so to get around it they they created the uh, EUA and the EUA is sort of a no-man's land where they um, they redefined what mandates are, or redefined what consequences are, and um, sort of uh, put themselves in a zone where they could avoid consent.
1: Well, right, you know, for for me, I, I have the same realization. The, re- the reason I responded to it is because nobody has talked about this during the whole pandemic, and. I mean, we've railed about the lack of informed consent, but there's two issues, I think, that go there. One is that informed consent was not adequately provided to people, regardless of, you know, assuming that they had a free choice to take the vaccine or not. But the second is that the information in the consent was a lie. In the information that was provided to people about the vaccines, it was untruthful, and the government misrepresented what it was even saying about the vaccines. So, not only was informed consent bypassed, but, but it was lied about that what people were told. And yeah. you know, I can understand a uh, in an emergency that there might be a rationale, though I don't agree with it. That there might be a rationale for. Um, asking people to bypass informed consent because of the necessity of protecting the population. I don't agree with that, but I can understand the rationale for it. What I cannot understand the rationale is lying over the contents of the consents that were provided to people. And uh, this is so draconian and, and so unreasonable. And, but what we learned is that this was not public health, that the, um, The National Security Council had taken over control of the pandemic six days after the emergency was declared, and it had redefined everything. It had redefined the virus as a bioweapon, and it had redefined the vaccines, the soon to be developed vaccines, as countermeasures. And with those definitions, they asserted that, that informed consent was not required when you have to have countermeasures, now invasive countermeasures is not something that you have to just bypass all ethical thinking about. So, uh, to me, this was just another government is um, statement of it depends on what the definition of is is, you know that that the government was mis- misrepresenting and lying for a purpose that was not in public health interest. Because everything that that was done during the pandemic was exactly the opposite of what we knew how to manage a a respiratory infection pandemic. That was sketched out by Inglesby and Henderson in in 2006. They published it and they said all the things you're supposed to do, not close airports, not lock down asymptomatic people, you know, and and, uh, masks don't work and, and on and on and on. And then we did the exact opposite. So the militarization of this, is what changed the definitions and gave them the key to doing what they wanted and we don't quite know yet why they did that but it certainly wasn't optimal from a, or appropriate or har- harmless from a public health sense yeah uh,
2: a couple of things you mentioned the uh dr henderson uh, paper and i i had seen that very early on and uh you know uh we we have the situation where kind of the more initials you have after your name, uh, the higher your credibility is supposed to be. Uh, I think it's become more of an inverse relationship. But anyway, in terms of Dr. Henderson, uh, I I thought his credibility was was impeccable because I uh, he led the team that rid the planet of smallpox. That's right. And I think when he died in 2016, he was leading teams that were about to rid the planet of uh, measles and polio. So uh, uh, I put him pretty high up there on the credentials uh, scale. Yes, and uh, and of course we did everything the opposite of uh, of what he was saying. Uh, it's too bad he w- he was already gone by the time uh, this started.
1: Well, the bizarre um, thing is that Tom Inglesby has been in the administration leading or involved in the pandemic management and did a 180 degree flip and has been carrying out and assisting and abetting carrying out all these wrong policies when he himself was the first author on that paper
2: mm, that i did not know um the other the other thing i'll point out in terms of like informed consent and that kind of thing that struck me because i i was very concerned from a personal uh, perspective regarding vaccinating children, and uh, I have uh, I have four grandchildren. I am now in the four week period every year where they're all the same age. They are all nine, <laughs> um, and the uh, uh, I I still recall that the week that the FDA advisory panel was considering the vaccine to, to approve it for twelve to seventeen year olds. Uh, the research came out of Israel showing that uh, there were 1,200 cases of myocarditis, um, and uh, the denominator was not that big. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it to me, it was an outrageous percentage, especially given the fact that I already knew that there were countries that had records showing that in healthy children under the age of 18, the number of deaths was exactly zero. That's right. So uh the uh, but they they approved it anyway, and my understanding is that it the myocarditis deal did not appear in the package insert until a month later. so uh, this was another, you know, to me it was just outrageous.
1: Well, they were arguing that myocarditis was rare. yes, it exists, but it's rare, ha-ha. And uh, th- th- that was a lie. It- it's not common, but it's not rare either. And the-, the the reason for that is that the studies that have done um, um, blood marker testing have shown that there's a lot more asymptomatic myocarditis than symptomatic myocarditis that occurs in polyvaccinated young adults. And that's a problem because myocarditis, as you know, is not a mild illness just because people who are diagnosed with it and, and get treated in the hospital get up after three or four days and walk out of the hospital doesn't mean the rest of their life is normal. Those people are at much higher risk for having um, cardiac events five, 10 years down the road. And, and, if, and if they're heavy exercisers like professional athletes, they're at much higher risk of sudden, sudden death, you know, six months, nine months, a year later and that's because of the you know these are are small but really harmful lesions inflammatory uh, foci in the heart that can disrupt the, the cardiac cycle the rhythm cycle and 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 just because these people are seem normal doesn't mean that they haven't been harmed by this that's the problem
2: yeah i uh i i'm especially keen on myocarditis because as a as a as a first-year resident, uh, I remember admitting a, a twelve-year-old girl. Uh, they admitted her to the adult ward because they didn't know where to send her. She had had a, a like a, a viral syndrome for some days and reached the point where um, she had like no blood pressure. And at one at one point, um, uh, I was uh, uh, she she sort of raised her her head to me. About a half an inch from my, my my face, and said, "Help me!" and died right in oh front God. of me. Oh God! We we were doing um, uh, CPR the entire night. Never got another beat, and it took three months. But the vi- the diagnosis was viral myocarditis. Yeah, and uh, you know, and the other part was the the senior resident on the ward was a woman in her late 20s, terrific physician, who was seven months pregnant. And it was like, who was going to go tell the mother who had two other daughters who were younger that her daughter had just died? So it ended up being me. I was about 26 years old at the time.
1: That is very traumatic for you. Uh, You know, I remember in med school, a a case of somebody who was very terminally ill, a 26-year-old healthy male with an abnormal tumor that was in the process of dying. Those things kind of shake you up, you know, in early stages of your career. Yeah,
2: but this was a perfectly healthy young girl and uh, up until that illness. Um, The other thing is, is that I am certain that on uh, Friday the 13th of 2020, I came down with myopericarditis hmm. from COVID. I have no doubt
1: hmm. about that. You had all the markers? Why don't we why don't we take a break here and we'll come back and talk about it? So everybody please stay tuned. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month
0: of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25.
1: Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. Stephen Quist. We were just talking about myocarditis and, and Dr. Kritz's experience of it. Um, as you said, uh, viral infections can cause this, but it's not very common. You know, I think what we've seen with the vaccine has been orders of magnitude more common than the rare cases that do occur from the virus itself. Do you think these are kind of autoimmune reactions where there's some inflammatory crossover between cell surface markers and something on the virus?
2: Well, I, um, you mean in terms of vaccine related or? Uh...
1: Well, even the virus is expressed on cell surface and, it, it, you know, getting an inflammatory reaction from the immune system, trying to deal with it because it sees it as foreign. I guess the question is where does the virus go? How how does the virus get to places? We know how the vaccine gets to places, but how does the virus do it?
2: Well. Um... Yeah, I, uh, well, I'll approach it from the, the point of view of uh, it, it was became evident early on that when you got the, uh, uh, the injection, the spike protein was supposed to stay in the spot where you injected it. Um, that was not true. I don't know how they were going
1: to be that good to do that anyway.
2: It seemed ridiculous. Well, well, you
1: know, I watched all the injections on TV. And when I was in med school, I was taught that you insert the needle, you pull back on the plunger, you don't see blood, then you push the, the contents. You see blood, you pull it out because you've gotten into or a broken um, uh, vein or a venule or something, a capillary. And I have never once seen that done. And, I, uh, and I've seen research on it that says it, it cuts the risk of getting into the bloodstream by about a factor of five. By doing that yet that's never been done
2: yeah but uh, uh I'm I'm not sure that the the bloodstream is the only route that that spike protein can move okay you know it's it's not like uh uh you're putting it into fat cells that uh are essentially inert for the next 60 years yeah. uh uh your your muscle is uh you know is vibrant it it, it's, it right it it's physiologically
1: and mechanically active that's right
2: yeah. So, um, uh, so my understanding is that in terms of from the vaccine, uh, it's uh, and I hesitate to call it vaccine. I usually don't. I just call it the jab. Uh, the the um, uh, that that spike protein go can go to uh, all kinds of tissues, and the heart muscle seems to be the uh, uh, first on the list but uh, I guess it can go to the brain it can go to the kidneys uh they have found it uh just about anywhere
1: well the gut uh nervous tissue um right I mean every place that it goes it creates the syndrome of that organ's damage you know that, that that's why there's so many different kinds of syndromes of of the vaccine damage
2: yeah. Now, in terms of uh, you know, from the virus itself, um, uh, as I said, I I had what I'm sure uh, uh, you know I never got tested because um, I remember my physician telling me, uh, well, why don't you why didn't you go to an emergency room because I I have a family history of car of of early death from cardiac disease that would choke a horse, uh-huh. and so uh, I'm followed very closely. I've outlived all of the male relatives in my family mm-hmm. by a lot. And I'm not that old, uh, the, uh, uh, but I said, well, at that point I was hearing about the body bags building up at the hospitals and all the doctor's offices were shut down. So there was nothing that I, that, that I could do at that point. But, uh, the, uh, but in terms of uh, a virus getting into the lungs and then getting to the pericardium, uh, that's not much of a stretch. Well, if and, it's
1: local movement, that's true.
2: Yeah. So, uh, and it lasted for, uh, I, I had pains of uh, decreasing intensity over the, over the course of um, about a week And then by the eighth or ninth day, I was back to doing my 17-mile bicycle rides uh, twice a week. Uh So I knew I had recovered. I mentioned that only because uh, that bicycle riding saved my life several months later. Because the most important thing I wanted to do when I went to see my physician, and this was in July, was to see if I made antibodies. I didn't. I had two wave inversions, but I didn't make antibodies. Huh. So, um, so I was prepared to get the vaccine when it came out, what ended up happening was I got, I got sick again in mid December and I had basically a cytokine storm in the lungs at okay. that time, the magic, the magic, uh, treatment was dexamethasone and well, it was remdesivir, uh, they remdesivir unfortunately. They, they they offered me remdesivir, but by then, I already knew that uh, Fauci and Bill Gates were the only people on the planet who were benefiting from remdesivir. So uh, I told them to go pound sand. The uh, But from the dexamethasone, I then got pneumonia in both lungs and lost 20 pounds in 10 days. Uh-huh. So I was back in the hospital for 11 days. And uh, I think it was only the fact that I had built up reserve from having done 2,500 miles a year of, on my bicycle yeah. that I was that I recovered. And six weeks later, I was I was back to normal, and I've been fine since. And I, I I have followed the antibodies, and I and I've been making antibodies for two years.
1: So after that, you made antibodies, but not before. I did make
2: I did make. Now I was. I was, at that time, the recommendation was three three months after you recover, you should get the two shots. Right. And I, I remember telling the, uh, this was the chief of pulmonary at, a, at the hospital. And I said, I said, when in the history of the world has um, a vaccine ever been better than uh, natural immunity? And, you know, he had no answer for that, but what he said was, uh, the theory was that the added boost from the vaccine would be
1: helpful. You know, that's a look over there-ism. That, that has no relationship to if if there's a mandate for vaccination, then what the vaccine does is the standard. So if you do something else that's better, it doesn't matter matter whether you add a vaccine to it. You've already met the standard. So that is a complete distraction and, an, and an irrelevance and an illogical to say that. And I fought that battle for a, a year or more um, in various places. It, it's a, it's absurd. It's, it's like somebody making up propaganda to distract you from what the real logical question is.
2: Yeah. Well, but if it, if it hadn't been for my uh, uh, medical uh, uh, professional practice and everything else, I wouldn't have known that. And uh, you know, and I think with my family history, I would have been one of the people that got the vaccine and had their coronary arteries clog up in two months. Yeah. Um, the uh, but when I was told that, I took it under advisement. Uh, I had a website where research was coming out. You know, five times a day, new stuff was coming out. Uh, this is uh, this is uh, March of 2021, mm-hmm. and uh, so the first thing they showed was that. Uh, if you'd already had it, one shot was good enough. And then it was the Cleveland Clinic study that came out on their employees, where they had uh, 3,000 of their employees um, had antibodies, and they were given a choice whether to take the vaccine or not. And half did and half didn't. And the half that uh, didn't did just as well as everybody else. Um, and the half and that did I eventually that,
1: got more, got more COVID than the half that didn't.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so once I saw that, uh, I said, nope, not going to do it. Um, of course, uh, my wife and I, uh, cause she got sick the same time I did, but hers was very mild, but she made antibodies also. Mm-hmm. And she was, she was doing some, uh, uh, for DM work where they Fortunately, they didn't require that she get the vaccine because I told her you're not getting the vaccine uh, under any circumstance. But uh, she was able to get away without it, and she's made antibodies for two years also. Yeah. The so the, was she the,
1: sick the first time you were sick or the second or both? Was that was she did she get COVID the first time you did or the second time you did? no
2: she didn't she didn't know I had it.
1: Uh huh.
2: I I, <laughs> I was able to walk through it. Uh, and I kept it because she would have been a basket case. Well, everybody
1: was, you know, propagandized to be afraid. We were all afraid.
2: Yeah. Well, um, yeah, but the thing is, is that the stuff that they were doing, I mean, the whole idea of not being outdoors, (laughs) I mean, you know, give me a break.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, not taking vitamin D, that everybody should have been taking vitamin D for forever. I mean, there's all sorts of, of shenanigans that have, have been part of this.
2: Yeah. the um, uh, uh, I I understand that there were uh, some emails that were released. And at one point, uh, Fauci and Offit and Walensky were thinking about accepting natural immunity. And they decided it would be too much of an administrative he- headache.
1: Yes, so, and one of my colleagues at Yale was in that meeting. And um, she's a very brilliant infectious disease microbiologist. And she originally said that my understanding is it was reported that she said that if you've had it, one is sufficient. And they basically browbeat her um into agreeing with their thing. Yeah. And and um what's remarkable is So I don't know if you know, after I wrote my hydroxychloroquine paper in the American Journal of Epidemiology, and then my colleagues wrote uh, an idiotic essay on Medium saying I didn't know anything about infections and infectious epidemics. And they had, of course, not done their due diligence to know that my PhD after med school my PhD was in mathematical models of infectious epidemics, and I had published on it, um, that so she she co-signed that kind of probably blindly that that letter with 20 other colleagues that's fallen into non-existence to speak of. Well, her husband ended up getting a uh, vaccine injured. and so she and he's another very well-known immunologist and and so um, she's kind of flipped and now looking at vaccine injury and studying vaccine injury. You know, for some people, you have to be really hit over the head with a personal experience rather than an intellectual one to see what's really going on in the world.
2: Yeah, which kind of brings us to um, uh, over the course of, of the dialogue that we had over a period of about um, eight, uh, eight, day, eight or ten days, and then because of a study that uh, we're we're uh, reviewing that we're going to be uh, looking to approve in about a week, um, uh, I realized that not only were was the you know OHRP uh, uh, regulations related to and and things related to the Nuremberg Code and the Belmont report not followed. But uh, what about uh, data and safety monitoring plans? Right. Uh, We, you know, this was a phase three. Um, In fact, I looked at the uh, guidance for OHRP regarding data and safety monitoring plans. And I think like the third sentence is that all phase three uh, research should have a data and safety monitoring plan.
1: I think it's must have, not should have, have, must have. Yeah, must. Yeah,
2: that's right. Must. And um uh and but I guess um uh the VAERS system, because of so much under-ascertainment and over-ascertainment and all the other problems, you had enough plausible deniability that you could make it say whatever you wanted it to say.
1: Well, that was that was the brilliant conspiracy of the, the CDC and the FDA that created the bears. Various- system is that it's so bad and so manipulatable that 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 they review each individual adverse report and can basically reassign them or pretend not to believe them and things like that that they can control what it says not only that it's massively underreported but that they can control it and so it it is the perfect opportunity for gaslighting. and the, the whole the whole thing has been unbelievable you know what's interesting to me is some 30 years ago, when there was this fad going around, every discipline, every field had to have its own code of ethics. And and at, th- at that time, I started making the joke that there needs to be a code of ethics for ethicists. Well, now it's come true. You know, our ethicists, our IRBs, our OHRP have not had ethics. They have not followed their own ethical guidelines during the pandemic. Isn't,
2: isn't Fauci's wife... The head of an ethical commission, a medical ethics commission. She, I believe, government.
1: she's the chief administrator of of the uh, I, the NIH IRB, which is a kind of a conflict of interest to have that function, the review function, over the ethical constraints on uh, an, an employee to be uh, in the in the spouse. The, that's a that's a, a, a clear conflict of interest. Yeah.
2: Now, you had mentioned uh, hydroxychloroquine. Now, for me, being on the outside uh, and not, not practicing, having practiced in a long time, to try and figure out whether it worked or not was damn near impossible. Uh, now, I knew that hydroxychloroquine was the standard for travelers uh, to malaria-prone countries for decades.
1: Uh, 65 years?
2: Yeah, Billions of doses had been given, um, and at higher dose than I think was being recommended for, uh, COVID.
1: Yes. And, 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 and people with rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, other autoimmune conditions, yeah. so on. That's right. Yeah.
2: The, the thing was they, uh, uh two things that, sh- that caught my attention. First, they started in on this stuff about prolonged QT interval. <laughs> okay. Um, Uh, uh, I I tend to wear my clinician's hat first. And I know darn well that nobody had an an EKG done before they were given hydroxychloroquine to go on their trip to a malaria-prone country.
1: That's right. Even people on other medications were not given EKGs. That's right.
2: Yeah. yeah. I I had experienced this also with uh, LAM, uh, L-A-A-M, which was a longer acting, uh, um, uh, opioid antagonist than, uh, than methadone. Okay. The VA was using it for a time. And then they suddenly came up with this, uh, uh, QT interval thing. The, the problem that they had in the substance abuse field is that there weren't enough internists practicing in that field because the internists that I spoke to who were in the field, including Marion, uh, Edelson, mm-hmm. uh, uh, knew that that was garbage but uh so you had that and then uh it was clear that you had to take the hydroxychloroquine within the first you know three or four days so what do they do the studies on prophylaxis and uh people who were sick enough to be in the hospital
1: right when it's too late already that's right so actually we need to take another break so we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back so everybody please stay tuned and receive a 15% discount on either Falker with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything.
0: AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk League. It's a fight for the soul of humanity.
1: Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Stephen Kritz. Well, talking about hydroxychloroquine, it was um, surreal. So I wrote my analysis originally on using it for treatment of high-risk outpatients, starting within the first four or five days, just like you said. And then it started getting criticized in the media. Oh, it doesn't work because it see here is these studies of hospital patients, and I said. Well, no, that's irrelevant. Hospital disease is a totally different disease. It's a respiratory distress, you know, disease of of immune breakdown products crudding up the, the the lungs, not viral replication like the flu, and and but this became systematic, and and I could not understand why there was a systematic misrepresentation. In the literature, until I understood why it was pharma controlling the messaging and putting out its desperate tentacles to get rid of immortal threats to it, its product, its patent products and vaccines. Yeah, they actually it.
2: they actually got even more sneaky. There was a big study that came out where use the hydroxychloroquine was used within the first seven days, and it showed no uh no uh, no 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 impact.
1: Well, you, you have, have to be you have to be specific well, me, about uh, what the uh, impact is. I, I think I'm
2: I'm going to tell you what you're okay. going to tell me, which was on a uh, uh, a website that I go on where people uh, health professionals can comment on things and such something and such. Uh, somebody brought up that study, and then somebody else who was clearly a statistician looked at the data and found that he could break it down into people who had gotten the d- dose within the first two days and people who had gotten dosed on days three and four. And when you break I that know the study, through, and I know
1: that that was David Wiseman and, and, uh, and colleagues, and that is correct. And uh, the ones who got it on the first day or, or the second day did better, statistically significantly better. But the problem was again, that the only outcomes of relevance are hospitalization and mortality. The, to be honest, do you really care if you've got symptoms for five days or seven days, as long as you know you're not gonna be hospitalized? The answer is no. You, the, what matters is you don't wanna die from this illness. You don't wanna get hospitalized and take you know have serious risk from the illness. That's what matters. Those are the only outcomes that matter. And so we were getting all these things. Oh, well, it didn't shorten viral, nasal viral carriage times. You know, and then you go and look in the, and so they were saying, see, it didn't work. And then you go look in the paper and you see that there was um, 14 people hospitalized in, in the placebo group and and six people hospitalized in the hydroxychloroquine group. And nobody died in either group. You know, so the, the signals are there, but misrepresented. This is this is all nonsense, what I've called science product, not real science, science product, that's just out there to create wrong messaging for a purpose.
2: Well, we also had the fact that uh, how many people really died from COVID or from chronic diseases that the COVID then activated and killed the person.
1: Well, so this is a long-standing argument as to the cause of death, so to speak. What we r- write on death certificates and what you know, what is the implication as to the real cause of death? Is it the thing that tipped the bucket over at the end, or is it the chronic condition that was so serious the person was going to die twenty minutes later anyway?
2: Yeah, but I'm, I'm 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 willing to count those. I'm willing to count even if you counted those as COVID deaths. And uh, I still think the uh, the actual number, uh, was it 1.2 million, is off by a factor of about three.
1: Probably. I mean, I think that the there have been at least two studies that I saw, one in children, one in adults, both of which are in the ballpark of about half the, I think it was hospitalizations, half of the hospitalizations were from COVID and half were with COVID. And of course, that was in the original year or or two years of of the pre Omicron illness. After Omicron saturated the 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 field of of, of the the uh, virus strains that are out there, that's gone down. So it's way less than than that. Maybe ten percent of hospice, hospitalized people are from Omicron as opposed to with Omicron. Yeah. Uh, well,
2: I I I still remember that when they were doing the counting, sort of the poster. The poster boy for the counting was the the guy in his twenties who hit a brick wall with his motorcycle at 95 miles an hour. He was decapitated. They happened to do a nasal swab. The swab showed positive. That was counted. Okay.
1: Oh well, well, you know, maybe he had some kind of cognitive impairment from the from the infection.
2: Well, yeah, you can you can, you know. <laughs> well. But uh you but, know. right.
1: There's been so much misrepresentation. For a purpose, throughout the pandemic, that and you know, and I've written about a lot of this in places, and and others have that it. You have to ask why. Why has the government been so lying and misrepresenting and unethical? Why has the government said we have to put children at risk to protect? other people who could very well protect themselves. So you're going to kill grandma is the line. Well, why can't grandma get vaccinated? Why can't grandma hold, you know, hole up in her house? Why can't, you know, grandma get Amazon to deliver stuff? There's all sorts of things that are used for protecting people that they can freely choose. So why is it that suddenly we have to vaccinate all children, all adolescents, all young adults to protect grandma when the, the fraction of grandmas that can't protect themselves is minuscule.
2: Yeah, I also looked at it from the per- point of view of you're then giving the child an experimental product who is expected to have another 70 or 80 year lifespan. Right. And to think that nothing might go wrong with that. I th- I thought the ads that they should have done uh, for, the, for the vaccine for children is... Uh, be the first on your block to turn your rug rat into a lab rat
1: (laughs) right right i know this whole thing was unethical and and so this is why where were the irbs objecting to this
2: well vaccinating children
1: for you know for no evidence of benefit to the those children only harm
2: the only thing i saw Showing that there was any dissension in the ranks was when uh, doctors uh, uh, Kraus and Gruber, uh, when they were doing going to do the boosters, they resigned from the panel and then wrote a pretty scathing uh, uh, editorial in the Lancet. But uh, I, I was looking that over, but even even that, uh, they didn't get into the
1: ethics of it. No, they resigned because the decision of, of the panel was released by the government before they had made the decision, you know, that offended their egos, not that it offended their sense of uh, ethics.
2: Oh, so I guess maybe I was giving them more credit than they deserved.
1: <laughs> right. You know, why is, why has there been no whistleblower from any of that? Well, you know, the, this, uh, the amounts of conflicts of interest of all of these people on these panels, for example, The first remdesivir hydroxychloroquine panel of the FDA in 2020 had 54 or so members. Of those, 18 had pharma conflicts of interest, and nine of them admitted to it. The other nine lied about it, but were discovered by independent researchers, and that would never, you know, in the normal course of NIH activity, that would be the first thing that would shut down a review panel is that degree of conflict of interest. And yet, nothing happened here. Then, later that summer, Fauci held a second panel that had 20 people on it to review, to do a sham review of hydroxychloroquine. Of those 20 people, 11 had pharma conflicts of interest. A controlling number of people on that panel that he selected had conflicts of interest, pharma conflicts of interest. This is the most unethical behavior that his wife, Christine Grady, should have struck down immediately, and yet it didn't happen. And yet his boss, his supposed boss, Francis Collins, who would have said, this is unethical, you can't have so much conflict of interest in this, went perfectly along with, was happy about. Well, now we know that it was actually Fauci who was Collins' boss. I know that sounds weird, but it turns out that the DOD grants, that the the bioweapons, bioterrorism program from DOD is run through NIAID and Fauci as the director. And so as much as the NIAID might have had three or $4 billion a year in its annual grant portfolio, it was given sixty billion dollars by DoD to do th- this gain-of-function and, and other viral research and bioterrorism research, and Fauci was in control of that money, and that made him de facto, you know, telling Collins what to do. Collins was his his apparent boss, but Fauci was the real the real person pulling the strings.
2: I'm not sure I want to get into Fauci because. Uh... The four-letter words may start flying.
1: I understand. I know. I know. And the first one is is spelled P R O S E C U T E. Well, so the question is: Are there stored blood samples that it could, you know, that are dated going back in into those years that one could examine for the presence of the virus or evidence? Well, what
2: happened was, um, you know, we we had a series of cases that we saw in the late seventies. Um, uh, uh my residency was from 77 to 80. Um, and then some years later, uh, well, of course, as soon as uh, the virus was characterized in 84, you know, I had one of my one of my holy cow moments there. and uh the some years later, I met people who were still at uh, Kings County. Um, uh, some of them had become uh, mainly in the nephrology uh field and they'd become essentially uh uh HIV nephrologists that became their career, yes. And when I talked to them about those cases, because I remember they were fellows when I was a, a, a resident, and I said those cases were HIV, weren't they? Because of course, they were. So, and in fact, in one case, in, in this one case from '77, there was an oncologist. Uh, I want to give him credit. His name was Julian Rosenthal. Mm -hmm. He's an oncologist at Kings County Hospital. And he used to do some research on uh, blood cells. Remember, T-cells were only uh, uh, characterized in 1974. And uh, so he did some work on that. And I remember in the winter of uh, 77, 78, I ran into him in the hall and I said, well, what did you find? He says, well, I don't know, but the, the, the white cell counts and all of that looked normal, but he didn't have any helper T cells. That's CD
1: four, CD four plus cells. That's right. He had nailed it. Yeah, of course. At the
2: time, we had no idea.
1: So the question is, why wasn't this strange uh, syndrome spreading in the way that it did when we did when we recognized it?
2: Well. We, ne- we never figured out what, you know, what they, what they had, um, uh, you know, uh, like for example, this particular case was a, 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 a bodybuilder in his early twenties who came in with disseminated herpes
1: uh-huh.
2: and he had vesicles all over his body.
1: Right. These are, immune and, dysfunction uh, things. And uh, huh? these are immune dysfunction things. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, uh, And at that time, uh, the only thing was available was a Cyclovir from uh, the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. And I remember the ID fellows going to LaGuardia Airport to pick up the uh, the stuff as it was shipped in, and I hung it. And he got better, but this guy was probably dead in a year or two.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, medicine was pretty rudimentary in those days, it seems.
2: Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I was—I uh, just happened to be the uh, pulmonary uh, resident in 1978 when we had the two index cases for the Legionnaires' outbreak in New York City. Oh. So I presented the grand rounds, which actually got published. The uh, the uh, but uh, we're now seeing outbreaks of Legionnaires.
1: Well, I'm expecting to see outbreaks of all sorts of different infections in poly multiply-vaccinated people. Okay, This is one of the hypotheses that these vaccines are inducing tolerance to infections and not antagonism, so to speak.
2: Yeah, I, I've reached a point where uh, I believe if we had done absolutely nothing and I know Jeffrey Tucker has talked about it in 1969 and I did get 11 miles away from the Woodstock festival but I would have had to hike in so I sold my tickets and went home but uh uh we essentially did nothing it, it would have I think it would have ended up with uh, we would have ended up with three bad uh flu in quotes seasons with about 125,000 deaths in each of them and that would have been it
1: I think you're right. I, I think that this is what we were arguing, that as much as uh, the Great Barrington Declaration put out the message that everything we're doing is wrong and we should just let most people live normal lives and protect you know, people at high risk, though I, I wasn't happy because they didn't say how to protect them and they didn't say that they could be protected by treating them early with hydroxychloroquine or later ivermectin and vitamin D and zinc and all the other stuff. Um, but there was that there was Sweden that that yeah I, I, very I think little. Sweden was the control country right you know and they did no worse and and more or less better than many other places and that shows that uh, from public health grounds we did everything wrong and yeah in the end the, the harm the massive harm that we did for our middle class and and small business owners and so on which should have been a public health Outcome of relevance in evaluating cost versus benefit should have been there for all of our policies and never was because, honestly, I don't know whether it's public health are it's just so simplistic. They think vaccine equals good and nothing else enters into that mental equation or that they were told by the Department of Defense or the government, vaccine equals good and thou shalt not question it. You know. Well,
2: I think one of the most outrageous things I saw with the CDC um, about uh, I saw I saw two interviews that Randy Weingarten gave uh, about six weeks apart. And I was certain that like a week after each of them, the CDC came out with recommendations, that were uh identical to what she was saying in the interviews. Yes. And then found the email, has it, they found the emails. Yes. And, uh, she admitted to I wasn't it. imagining it.
1: That's yeah. right. That's right. No, no. They were in, in close contact and 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 she admitted to that. That was her constituency, Wilensky, not the American public.
2: Um, yeah.
1: And you yeah. know, and
2: well, what what you needed to there were four things you needed to know about Randy Weingarten. She's nasty, she's vile, she has no medical training, and uh, she's childless. Just who you want determining how your children are educated and uh, uh, are cared for uh, from a public health perspective.
1: Yes, yes. Well, there's more to that story that we could talk about another time. And unfortunately, we've actually run out of time. These, these discussions, they're almost an hour, and they just go by very quickly in mm-hmm. my experience. Well, I, so I hope our listeners have enjoyed this conversation. And if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. So, Steve, thank you for some really interesting discussions. I've enjoyed it. and Thanks, everybody, for listening, and please come back again next week.